Good morning once again. We're, uh, the ladies are getting more communion, more of the elements prepared for us this morning. Um, interesting, uh, when I was in Israel, my first trip over, uh, we had a, a Messianic tour guide named Arye Bar-David. Um, and, uh, and he was uh, just a very knowledgeable Messianic Jew, uh, the founder and builder of the only Christian kibbutz in Israel. I stayed there. I didn't stay the first or the second trip I stayed. I went on a, a pastor's tour over there, a group of pastors we toured through on a teaching tour on the land. And, and um, there were some things that came out then and there uh, through talking with this guy, with REA, and uh, just through seeing some of the, the influences that people had in the first century. And uh, we're going to have an uh, interesting time this morning. As I prayed and as I, because I, you know, believe me, I come before the Lord on this stuff. And uh, I just sensed that this is a timely message. It's, it's, it's exactly where we're at in the Gospel of John. As we go, and we're going to go to... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew to kind of fill it out and then we'll come back to the Gospel of John this morning. Um, and then we'll finish up with communion as well. So as we've been looking here at the Gospel of John, we saw last week that Jesus came into Jerusalem. He had gone to Bethany and, and that as he got the donkey and, and the guys got the donkey in her foal and he got the donkey and he came down across the, the Mount of Olives. We looked at that last week and, uh, and came into the city. We saw that there were really several mindsets represented in that. Uh, we saw that, that there were the people that were there because they were, came with him down the hill because they were interested in the signs and wonders. And we know that earlier in the Gospel of John, we've seen that the people were attracted to that as sort of an end to itself, not because they attested to the fact that he was Messiah, but that he could do essentially magic tricks. And it was a low view of who he was and what he was about. And, and yet there was an attraction to that. There's an attraction to us, to the supernatural, because we live in a physical world. We, we see the laws of physics all around us. And when we come to the knowledge that Jesus can actually bend the laws of physics because he owns them, it's amazing to us. And so there's an attraction. And so we saw that there were people that wanted to signs and wonders Jesus as part of that crowd. And then we saw that there were the people that wanted a political Jesus, the ones that were saying, Hosanna, uh, glory to God in the highest, save now, bring prosperity now, quoting the Old Testament. And, and so there was sort of the people that, that again, they wanted the political-oriented Jesus, the, the one that would throw off the yoke of Rome and, and usher in his kingdom then, not knowing that Jesus's mission was far greater than that to throw off the sins of humanity as opposed to the yoke of Rome. So we looked at that. Those people were, were represented in that crowd on the not so triumphal entry. Remember we talked about that. Yeah, we call it the triumphal entry, but, and it was in the sense that he was presenting himself to Israel as Messiah. The day that Daniel had prophesied hundreds of years before, and yet it wasn't so triumphal because within the next five days, 
he would be hanging on a cross and they would be crucifying the Lord of glory. So we saw then that there were the, there was a, there were the people that wanted a sort of a religious Jesus. They wanted him to toe their line. The, the religious leaders were so put off by him. We've seen that so many times in this gospel and, and throughout the gospels where all they want to do is kill him. They don't want to do business with him and to deal with the message. They want to get rid of him because he's threatening their stuff. So people that wanted a religious Jesus. And today we see that religion has supplanted Christianity in so many ways. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, And then there were the people, we're going to look at it this morning and, and, and really kind of expand upon it, that wanted a cultural Jesus, a culturally relevant Jesus. Uh, Jesus that was... Uh, sort of a a result of their culture. And they wanted him to be culturally compliant in that sense because the culture in Jesus' day was uh, something else. We're going to look at that in depth this morning. We finished last week with looking at the one crowd, really the, the, the group that was there that really had merit and they were his true disciples. The ones who looked at him as Lord and looked at him as Messiah, and and yet even they didn't quite get what was about to happen, yet their hearts were for him, and they were yielded to him, and they were fully on board with what he was about to do, even though, again, it wouldn't be until after the resurrection when he opened their minds to understand that they would fully get the message. So we see that there were true believers in that. We ended up uh, if you remember talking about, uh, so, so what is our response to him, to his love, to his work in our lives? And looking in Micah where he gives three things. He says to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Those are the things that the Lord requires of us. So we finished last week in verse 19 when it, we looked at the Pharisees. They're seeing this whole thing unfold. And remember, Jesus says, you know, if these become quiet, the, the stones will cry out. Uh, after fulfilling numerous prophecies, uh, where it says in verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. We also looked in Matthew and we looked in Luke's gospel. We, we're sort of blending the gospels here as we go. And I'm going to do that again this morning. We're going to spend actually the bulk of our time in the gospel of Matthew going forward from here. And this literally picks up where we leave off in John here. We're going to end up the following day in Matthew, but I want to bring some things out there that I think are very, very interesting and they're very significant as we apply God's word to our life today. So uh, we see at this point, after coming into the city, Jesus goes up to the temple and he cleanses the temple again for the second time. Other gospel writers put this at the beginning of his ministry. John puts it at the end of his ministry. As I mentioned last week, I think he did both. Uh, he began his ministry by cleansing, by taking and turning over the, the money changers' tables and, and, and all of that. He made a whip of cords the first time. It doesn't talk about that here, but uh, he does go up to the, the Temple Mount. And so in Matthew 21, and we're going to take, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. Uh, it says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and, and the seats of those who sold doves, probably with them sitting in them, I might add. <laughs> there are tens of thousands of people on the temple mount at this point. This is Passover week. This is the day of selection. 
Talked about that last week. We're going all the way back to Exodus where the, the lamb was selected and then you had to keep the lamb in your house for four days to inspect it. After it was selected, it was inspected. And then after that, it was killed at twilight, three o'clock in the afternoon, perfectly fitting what Jesus did that last week. And, and so here he goes up on this, the, the Temple Mount. And, and again, this is Herod's Temple. This is a big place. It was probably a thousand feet squared at that time. Uh, the, the court of the Gentiles would have been packed with people. And, and in the portico where you enter the temple, they're sort of on the southern uh, entrance of the temple. There's two gates that go in. Interesting, and three gates that come out. The reason is, is people would meander in all through the day, but they had to be out at sunset. The, the temple had to be cleared. And so they had to have a, a greater point of egress than they did of ingress because everybody would come out at once at the end of the day. So, and then Jesus would head to the Mount of Olives with his guys and either go to Bethany to his friend's house, to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, or he would go down to the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, which was their meeting place. So here he goes up onto the temple and he does the whole thing. He cleanses the temple again. We're not going to go into detail on that, great detail. But he says in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Uh, and Mark adds, prayer for all nations. Interesting, because we know at this point that the gospel is going to be rejected by the Jews and it's going to be embraced by the Gentiles, that the gospel will go to the Gentiles with Jesus and, and the work that he does at the cross. So anyway, he says, you've made it a den of thieves. Uh, again, we've talked about it at length when we looked at this the first time. Annas's Bazaar, the, the, the whole hoopla show that Annas had put together. Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas was really behind it because he was Caiaphas's father-in-law. And, and he would have this whole deal where they had the money changers. You had to have the, the, the shekel of the sanctuary in order to do any business on the Temple Mount. Uh, and if you came from another part of the empire, you had to exchange that. So they charged a high exchange rate. And then if you brought an animal, I mean, because if you come from some distant part of the empire, you can't really pack a sheep along with you. I mean, well, you could, but it might take a lot of room. But anyway, so they would come and they would buy animals at, at the Passover to be able to sacrifice. And, and if you were a poor person, you could buy uh, turtle doves, which were pigeons. I mean, that's what they call them in Bible times, turtle doves. It's a pigeon. Uh, and that was sort of, if you're on the lower end of the income scale, you can't afford much and you want to sacrifice, you could still sacrifice. And so provision was made by God in the law for people to be able to do this. And these are people that are looking for substitutionary atonement. That's what the sacrificial system's for. I sin, I deserve death. Doesn't matter what, thought, word, or deed. The, the, the broadest definition of sin is anything that falls short of the glory of God, of the perfection, the moral perfection of God. And so all have sinned, we're told in Romans, and fall short of his glory. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so here these people, the sincere ones, they're coming to Jerusalem because they want to be a part of this. They want to see their sin atoned for. And these people were just ripping them off. Interesting, Isaiah and Jeremiah said this was a place for all nations to come and pray. Praying was going on, but it was the priests praying on the people. Not the same kind of prayer. Uh, they were praying on the sincerity of the people. 
Uh, and again, those that came with hearts that were towards God, hearts that were obedient towards the law, they truly did want to come and encounter God through that sacrifice. And these people were making it a sham. Um, oh, I'm tempted to rabbit trail. You guys help me. <laughs> those of you that know me know what I'm talking about. <laughs> people are still fleecing the flock. Uh, there are people out there that are still ripping God's people off. I mean, I think about some poor elderly lady whose husband is gone. She's living on a, on a widow's pension, uh, sending money in to some buffoon on television because he's going to send her a prayer cloth. It's just not right. It's just not right. Giving is a biblical principle. And it's one that's an act of obedience. And yes, we are to give. Uh, I, I sort of avoid the word tithe because that implies a tenth. Giving implies all of it. What do I have that I haven't received? That's what the Bible tells us. And, and so yes, supporting the ministry, absolutely. I'm not saying we shouldn't. As a matter of fact, we should. And if you're not, you really need to pray about that because that is a point where the rubber meets the road. Giving is a biblical principle, and the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is, it's hilarious. It's, it's, it means a hilarious giver. Somebody that's, oh man, Lord, you're just so good to me. I'm just here. And, and, and truly, the, the word tithe means tenth. Like I said, I don't even look at that. I just look at, Lord, what are you putting on my heart to give, to support the ministry, to support the work? That's right, giving. But see, these guys weren't into giving. They were into taking, and there's a difference. And so, Jesus comes against them because they're ripping the people off. That's the point. There's my rabbit trail. All right, so uh, verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Uh, now, the blind and the lame were normally kept out. They were normally the ones that sat at the gate. Uh, they were the ones that the people would support because they sat at the gate there, but they were coming in. And, and I just picture this beautiful scene. Jesus is up there. He's healing people in the temple that day. And, and he's, he's there. And the, the priests and, and the, 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 uh, the religious leaders are looking at him with disgust because he's doing what he does. And you know, I would submit to you that for Herod's temple, this moment was probably the closest, closest that it ever came to being the temple of God. It was the temple of God. Here, God in the flesh, God manifest in the flesh, is here ministering to his people, healing the blind, taking care of the poor, taking care of the people, loving them with a sacrificial love, such a sacrificial love as they wouldn't know until after this week. So uh, it says, as he did, the children, uh, literally the boys is what that is, were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, and these guys, the, the, the chief priests, they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did. And, and the boys crying out and saying, Hosanna. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? I love Jesus' response. In verse 16, he says, yes. I just, you know, I, I mean, Period? Yeah, I do. I hear what they're saying. Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, and they knew what was being indicated there. 
He says, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? He's quoting Psalm 8, and I would love to take the time to go through Psalm 8 because it's a beautiful psalm, and expanding upon it, you really see Jesus' purpose here because it's talking about the presence of God coming, dwelling with his people. Beautiful psalm, and, and, and yet... I, I, again, I picture him, and he's always doing that with these guys. They're always trying to trip him up, trying to snag him. They're, they're so against him, even when he's doing good things, beautiful, wonderful things, fulfilling the true function that the temple courts were designed for, that Israel was to be a light unto the nations, and here he is, the light to the nations. He says, have you never read? He's, you, he's asking them, are you familiar with God's word? Where, where these things are so? I mean, we see the importance Jesus puts upon the word of God here. And, and over and over again, he quotes the prophets, he quotes these guys. And we'll look at how he deals with the Greeks here as we go along because he deals with them a little bit differently. But, but here he says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you've perfected praise. I remember as a young Christian, the first time I heard this verse, I went, oh, that's where that saying comes from, out of the mouths of babes. Yeah, it's out of the Bible. Uh, Verse 17, and then he left and, and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. So this is where we're, we, and, and, and again, when we come back to the Gospel of John, it'll be the same day, but, but I really want to follow this story out here in Matthew because there are some very significant things that are revealed. So now we see that, and I'll just, uh, just read off the passages here. We're going to talk about cursing the fig tree. Judges chapter 9, Jeremiah 24, Hosea 9, Joel 1, and other passages talk about Israel as God's fig tree. And by design, God had designed her to be a fruitful fig tree, a fruitful tree. Uh, and verse 18, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit on you ever grow again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Israel is the fig tree. And here at this point, we see that Israel is fruitless. They had all the fluff. They had all the, the outward adornment. They had all of the function. But they were empty. They were rebellious. They were walking away from God instead of walking towards him. They were rejecting Messiah instead of embracing him. And Jesus sees this fig tree. He knows what the fig tree represents. And he says, you know what? You're done. And Israel, in their form as they had existed till then, would be as he prophesied the day before when he came over the city, and, er, the, the, the hill on the Mount of Olives, and he prophesied over the city and wept for it. Remember, we talked about that, sobbed for the city. And he said, you know, in, in you, not one stone will be left upon another because you didn't recognize the day of your visitation. And so here he is the next day cursing Israel through cursing this fig tree. It says, and, 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 and the point in that is, is that they had the outward stuff, but the inward was all wrong. And that's the definition of hypocrisy. They, they were completely hypocritical in their view of God, in their treatment of him, and in the way that they carried out the stuff. It was sort of a religious machine at this point with no real life in it. 
Verse 20, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Now, this is the first time that Jesus uses his power to bring judgment. Uh, usually when he uses his power, it's to bring life, it's to bring healing, it's to bring uh, restoration. And here, he kills the fig tree. It's a very poignant place in his ministry. Uh, in verse 21, so Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it'll be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So he says, now this has been a cryptic passage for many, many people, and it has been for me as well, because it's like, I think I believe and I pray and nothing happens. So what's he saying here? Uh, is it, and and you got to realize that when Jesus, when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that a name in the Bible always is indicative of character. And we know that God's design for our lives is to communicate his moral attributes to us. That's why we have on the sign out front, learning to think like Jesus, because that's our goal. I want to think more like Jesus every day as I go along. I want him to conform me to the image of his son. And so therefore, as I think more like him and as I act more like him, as he directs my prayers, we talked about that a lot on Friday night, he, he, he directs our prayers as we wait on him in prayer, as we wait on him to move, as he directs our prayers, and then we offer those prayers up to him, he is in a place to answer, to work, and to, to operate in that realm. So here, the guys see this fig tree, wither and and they're blown away there's wow the thing just it just withered up it dried up right in front of them i mean the leaves probably got all crackly and crunchy and stuff i mean it would have been a sight to behold right and so he says no 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 if you believe he's always talking about that you'll see greater things than this you'll be able to say to this mountain be cast into the sea now i'm going to go into interpretation here and i want to let you know that ahead of time the truths that I'm going to talk about remain. I'm going to get into some interpretation on what he's talking about when he's talking about this mountain and the sea. And this is something, as I mentioned when we started, that I never connected until I stood on the Mount of Olives in Israel, which is where Jesus was. It says that he's on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, and you cross over the base of the Mount of Olives, the southern flanks of the Mount of Olives, to get there. And there would have been some things that he'd have seen as he went along. Now, there is a place called Heronian. It's about eight miles south of Jerusalem. And what it was, was Herod's palace. And it was a man-made mountain. When I was in Jerusalem, I kept, as we drove by, it, we'd be in, in our car, and we'd be driving by, and I'd look, and I'd see that here's the landscape, and then it would do this, this kind of flat-topped, very symmetrical mountain. And I, I'd see it off in the distance looking down towards Bethlehem. Actually, it's a couple miles past Bethlehem. And, and I kept wondering what that was. And then one day, uh, we were informed that we were going to Herodian. I'd never heard of Herodian. It's like, what's Herodian? Well, what it was, was a mountain that King Herod the Great had built for his palace. And actually, his tomb is there. Now, what Herodian represented in their culture was Hellenism. 
I don't know if you guys have ever heard about Hellenism. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about culture today. What it represented was the prominent, the prevalent culture of the day, which was Greek culture. All right. Now, the Romans brought power. They projected power uh, when they conquered the then known world. A couple of hundred years before, Alexander the Great had projected power and because he was Greek and he had come in and his, the culture of the Greeks had spread throughout the whole empire. Now, when Rome took it over, Greek culture remained and it grew. And it was to such a point at the time of Jesus to where it had totally diluted uh, conservative Judaism, if you would, and, and had great influence because the Greeks had a pantheon of gods. They were totally into false idol worship and, and they had the different temples around the empire like the Temple of Diana at Ephesus and, and different ones around. And there was a great deal of influence from the culture pressuring Judaism at this time. So I'm going to look at some slides here. The first one here is this map. Is, is, you'll see there's Bethany and Jerusalem. Now figure Jesus somewhere between the two red dots at the top there uh, that indicate Bethany and Jerusalem. And if you look south, it's about eight miles away. There's Herodium. And from where he stood on the Mount of Olives, there is no question that the dominant thing on the skyline, the dominant thing on the horizon would be this mountain that Herod had built. And if you panned to the left, looking downrange at Herodian, if you pan to the left, looking down is the Dead Sea. Okay? Now, Herodian represented everything wrong with their culture. It represented Greek thought, Greek philosophy, and, and, and a whole Greek influence that had come to, to bear in Israel during that time. So now the next one here, this is what Herodium, uh, an artist's conception of what it would look like. You see Herod's palace at the top. There were, it, it was a round circle of a palace with one huge tower and three small towers on the other corners, uh, sort of corners, but in, in other quadrants there. And, and there are a lot of structures down at the bottom. Greek architecture is very prominent in these ruins. Have you ever noticed, have you ever wondered why when you look at the ancient ruins of Israel that it's all columns and Greek influence, Greek architecture? It's, it, it's Hellenistic. Uh, the Decapolis, the, the, the ten cities uh, of the Decapolis were all Greek architecturally engineered cities and they had Greek culture in them. Next slide, please. So this is what it looks like today. This is that kind of flat-topped, um, odd-looking mountain. Very symmetrical, like I said, and it stands out from everything around it. It dominates the skyline as you look south from the Mount of Olives. Next one. Now looking down, go ahead. Looking down at it like, from an aerial view, there are extensive ruins here. And I went up there, I walked around in these ruins. It was absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, the, the, what's left of the palace of Herodian is significant. And in 2006, uh, geologists actually unearthed Herod's tomb. They found it. They looked for it for decades. And just in the last, what, 12 years ago, uh, they located his tomb and they found a grand staircase that was like, 25 feet wide 
that was designed just for his funeral procession. Uh, and I could get into all of that. But what I want to talk to you about is, is when Jesus said, say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, was he pointing at Herodian? Was he pointing? He says, he didn't say, say to a mountain. The text clearly indicates, say to this mountain. Like I said, I'm into interpretation, but I'm using this to symbolize Hellenistic culture in the first century. Next slide. So, the Dead Sea, let's see, I've got some figures here. All right, the Mount of Olives is 2,710 feet, the top of it. So, Jesus is down on the flanks a little bit, say 2,500 feet or so. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. It's minus 1,400 and some feet below sea level, okay? So, as you're looking from Herodian, which would be roughly level with the Mount of Olives, because it's along the ridge line of the mountains that are there in Israel. And you look down, you're looking down into a bowl, into a hole. And I remember very clearly seeing how beautiful. It was a very sunny day and very clear day when I'm looking out. I'm looking at Herodian and I'm looking down there. And it was like, I was blown away because our, our, our teacher was talking about this passage and saying that he believed that what made more sense than any of the other things that people have postulated as far as this passage goes was that Jesus was revealing, you can say to Hellenistic culture, be thrown into the sea. Again, I put that out there. It may or may not be correct. For the purpose of understanding what we're facing this morning, I just want to go there for a few minutes. Now, I want to talk about something called acculturation. That's a big word. You don't have to remember it. But what it is, is enculturation is the process of learning your own group's culture. I mean, we are part of a culture, right? Right? Acculturation is the process of taking on another group's culture. And Rome intentionally promoted Hellenistic culture in Israel, in, in all of the lands that they, that, they, that they dominated, that they captured. They did that because they were trying to unify the empire. And it made very perfect sense to them to bring in Hellenistic culture and Greek culture. Uh, and I'm going to look at, uh, first off, I'm going to read, I'm going to do quite a bit of reading here because I want you to understand this is what the people faced in their day. And, and I think by the time we're finished, you'll see some very striking similarities to what we face in our culture today. The Greeks, the Greek culture had spread throughout the Mediterranean world during the three centuries before Christ, primarily because of the military victories of Alexander the Great. They believed in a variety of gods who were quickly accepted by all conquered peoples with the exception of the Jews. The Greeks chose to represent their heroes and gods in the nude because they viewed the human body as beautiful and full of meaning. This was, of course, in direct conflict with the values of Judaism. The Greek cities along the Jordan River were originally Canaanite cities, and they also accepted the Greek culture and religions known as Hellenism. By the time Jesus was in his ministry, pagan thought and reason had made major inroads into Jewish life and theology. Interesting. Finally, the Greeks and the Romans had great difficulty understanding the Jewish religion. They could not understand how anyone could worship a god they could not see and what deity, and that deity did not behave as they did because they made God in their image. That was the whole thing. I mean, all of the Greek pantheon of gods, they were like human-like in that sense. I and mean, we know that they don't exist. Well, they probably do, but in demon demonic form, not in any other state. So we see that 
Greek thought, Hellenistic thought, had dominated their culture. Now, specifically looking at Hellenists, the Hellenists were Jewish people who abandoned the laws of Judaism and accepted the Greek culture. Hellenism means Greek. They believed the laws of Moses prevented them from enjoying the full pleasures of life promoted by the Greeks. When we talked about that, the Sadducees, very liberal, they were Hellenists, okay? They, it was, they were also very, um, no, not narcissistic, they were narcissistic, but they were very hedonistic, living for pleasure, and that was promoted by the empire. So hang with me here, guys. We'll get there, I promise you. So the Hellenists were Jewish people. They abandoned the laws of Judaism, accepted Greek culture. Hellenism comes from the Greek word hellas, meaning Greek. They believed the laws of Moses prevented them from enjoying the full pleasures of life promoted by the Greeks and later by the Romans. The Romans had their own gods, but they still kept the Greek thought alive. Uh, for example, young men at times desired to participate in the public baths or to, or to play in the Greek games and, and to obtain a perfect body. That was really promoted by the Greeks. But since the athletic games were played in the nude, they were embarrassed and could not assimilate into Greek Roman community. Since the Gentiles believed circumcision was disgusting, some Jewish men endured a surgical procedure known as epispasm, in which the marks of circumcision were removed. They could then participate in the Greek games and not be identified as being Jewish. For that reason, Orthodox Jews accused them of abandoning the Holy Covenant. Hellenists were almost indistinguishable from their Greek neighbors. By the time of Jesus, their religious allegiance was with the Romans and the Sadducees, and in fact, the Sadducees were Hellenistic. Talk about hedonism, the, uh, as far as the, the lover of, uh, being a lover of pleasure. That's what hedonism is. It's the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he says to turn away from such. Now the last group I want to look at here is Herodians. And these are in the Bible. This is a small political non-religious group. The Herodians were Roman sympathizers and individuals of prestigious status in the royal court who always promoted their so-called rightful claims to the Jewish throne. Uh, that's what King Herod was. He was a Jewish king, uh, madman, absolutely brilliant architect, but absolutely nuts. Um, that's a biblical word. No, sorry. <laughs> <All right. laughs> they were neither Roman agents nor servants, but Jews who were either secular or Sadducees. They are mentioned three times in the Gospels as opponents to Jesus in Matthew and in a couple places in Mark. And Josephus mentions them as those of Herod's party. The entire group was wiped out during the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So when we talk about culture in the first century, we're talking about, yeah, the architectural, but we're also talking about the ideological. We're talking about the ling linguistic. Now, why is the New Testament written in Koine Greek? Hellenistic influence. Uh, we're talking about the philosophical. Look at Paul in, in Acts 17. He goes up onto Mars Hill in Athens to talk with the Stoics and the philosophers because they were the ones that governed Greek thought in that day. They were the ones that actually wrote permits for people to go and to speak publicly. Had to get permission. Um, it was also greatly influenced the theological. Uh, the Greeks had a pantheon, as I mentioned, a pantheon of gods. Uh, so they were pantheistic, but they were also polytheistic. Many gods, not one god. 
So Orthodox Jews in the first century were finding it more and more difficult to get along in an increasingly Hellenistic Greco-Roman culture. The culture was influencing the people instead of the people influencing the culture. Jesus says, you could say to that mountain, all that Hellenism represents, be cast into the sea. Throw that out there. I want to read an article. This is a short article. It's some excerpts from an article that was written a couple of years ago. And it's, it's entitled, Regular Christians Are No Longer Welcome in American Culture. It was in Time Magazine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I laughed when I saw it too. Traditional American Christians have long been on the losing end of the culture war on school prayer, same-sex marriage, and many other issues. Some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs, uh, like the teacher in New Jersey spend, suspended for giving a student a Bible. A football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of a game. The fire chief in Atlanta that was fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. A Marine uh, that was court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. Uh, so many examples. We, we've all heard them. And other examples of this new intolerance. You remember that a lot of the, 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 the non-Christian community was saying, we, we want tolerance, we want tolerance, we want tolerance. Well, having gained traction in our culture, now have become extremely intolerant towards us. First time in history. First time in modern history, I'll say. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage and accuse anti-abortion Christians of waging a supposed war on women. Some Christian institutions face pressure to conform to secularist ideology or else. Flagship evangelical schools like Gordon College in Massachusetts and King's College in New York have had their accreditation questioned. Some secularists argue that Christian schools don't deserve accreditation, period. Activists have targeted homeschooling for being a Christian thing. Atheist Richard Dawkins and others even called it tantamount to child abuse. Student groups like InterVarsity have been kicked off of campuses. Christian charities, including adoption agencies, Catholic hospitals, and crisis pregnancy centers have become objects of attack. And the writer in this article says, something new has snaked its way into the village square, an insidious intolerance for religion that has no place in a country founded on religious freedom. On that point, I disagree. There's nothing new. Down through history, when societies have fallen apart, it's because they've compromised. It's because they've allowed the culture to influence faith and practice. Folks, I see it, I look around, I see it in the church. I see parts of the church actually becoming part of the great apostasy. I see where the church now lo no longer is standing up to our culture, but engaging our culture in the interest of being culturally relevant and crossing a line somewhere. And again, I have no one in mind I'm not up here to just start thumping on people. But the truth is the truth. Our culture has waged war on us. 
and appears to be winning. And when this writer says there's something new that's come in, that's crept in, no, it's not new. It's one of Satan's oldest tactics. Because if I were faced with an army that was projecting power, I could resist that. But when I'm faced with people in my family, when I'm faced with people around my community that want to bring pressure to bear for me to conform to the cultural norms, no, not now, not ever. If we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything, folks. These are very serious times that we live in. These are times where we need to be strong as the church. Not just a church, like Calvary Chapel Newburgh. Yes, I love it here. But we need to be strong as the church. Because an army projects power. But think about it. Culture projects influence. And culture is constantly... It's, it's just nagging at us to project the influence of our culture and to bring it into the church. And some churches have bent. Some groups have yielded. Some have said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll say yes because we want to be all things to all people. Well, I would submit to you that that is not what is meant when Paul says, I want to be all things to all people because he follows that with, I, to, in order to win some, it's always about the gospel. It's always about Christ. It's always about his love poured out on that cross and then his power brought to bear in us through the resurrection. If we depart from the gospel, we have nothing. I just want to encourage you, be strong in the Lord. Don't let, yeah, for them it was Hellenism. For us, the culture that we live in has become absolutely godless. And not just neutrally godless, but aggressively godless in trying to get to us. I never thought, when I came to Christ 35 years ago, I never thought I would see the day where I could actually see what the Bible talked about, the church coming under persecution. I never thought I would see it. I really didn't. That's a short amount of time in biblical history. And yet that's the world that we live in. And that's the world that is trying he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. They never said they wouldn't try. And that is a concerted effort from the pit of hell to come against you and I for our faith. And there's a place where we stand up. No, we don't project power. We don't, we're not going to win this war. And it is a war. We're not going to win it by projecting power, by murdering abortion clinic doctors or nonsense like that. Yeah, do I think that that's wrong? Of course I think it's wrong. But where we will win it, folks, is on our knees. That's why Jesus talks about prayer. When he's telling these guys about, say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. He's talking about in prayer. He's talking about your link to the supernatural, to the real realm because this life is a fishbowl. I've mentioned before, it's like if you take a fishbowl with a goldfish in it, you put it in the middle of a room, that, that, that goldfish could look out and he could see dimly what's going on in the rest of the room. But the rest of the room is reality. We spend this life as a vapor. We spend this life in the fishbowl. We can see into that realm, into our Father's realm, dimly, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, but then face to face. And so... 
what manner of life ought we to have in this life in light of these things? In John chapter 12, I'm going to wrap up here and then we'll come to the Lord's table. In verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among them, there they are again, who came to worship at the feast. There were many Greeks that had converted. They were proselytes to Judaism. And I don't know if these guys were just looky-loos. I mean, if they were just there because they were part of the empire and they wanted to go to the feast. It doesn't tell us if they are convert, converts to Judaism, but they want to talk to Jesus. And, and the Greeks were, were different. They, and if they were Hellenistic Jews, they had sort of twisted and, and watered down Judaism in its true form. But they come to Jesus and they want to talk to him. And they said to Philip, uh, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. It was known as Galilee of the Gentiles back then. Uh, that's how it's talked about in, in the prophets too. Uh, so Philip has a Greek name and perhaps they're coming to him because he's Greek. Uh, they asked him saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So there's a group of Greeks that want to talk to Jesus. They want to see him. And so in verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew and in turn, Andrew told, and Philip told Jesus. And so both of these guys, again, they have Greek names. Uh, not by mistake. Don't know how far that goes here. Uh, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He doesn't say, come on in, let's talk, let's have tea or whatever. He just begins to teach. He says, the hour has come. Remember in the Gospel of John, two other places, he says, my hour has not yet come. Remember when his brothers wanted to go down to Jerusalem? He said, no, 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 my hour has not yet come. Uh, and yet now he's saying the hour has come. Uh, the hour that he was born for. We'll look at that next week. Uh, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now when they thought about this, they would think about projecting power. Because at that point, people believed that Messiah, when he came, that he would come and he would project power. That he would set up his kingdom and that he would rule from that place, from in Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount. He would rule the world, that he would rule the earth and that he would absolutely throw off Rome and anybody else that opposed them. And their thinking was when he said this, this would have quickened them. They would have brightened uh, and said, uh, thought, well, you know, the hours come for the son of man to be glorified. Now the son of man, yes, it can mean Jesus' humanity, but it was also a term used for Messiah. And so he's saying, it's time for me to be glorified. And they were thinking glory as an elevation they had no concept of glory being through the wretchedness of a cross. Something the world could only see as disgraceful humiliation, Jesus saw as being glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, Jesus meets these Greeks where they are. He does not quote the Old Testament prophets, which most of the time he does. He talks about he is the fulfillment of, of an Old Testament prophecy or, or something that went on. He doesn't tie it back to Judaism because these are Greeks. He appeals to them in some, with something that they would understand. And he says, unless a grain of wheat can fall to the ground and die, it's not going to happen. He, he, he's saying uh, it, it, it has to remain alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He's saying this to illustrate the kind of glory that he was about to engage in. Again, right over their heads, 
probably missed it, doesn't say. But we know that what Jesus is saying here is, is he's meeting them where they're at. And he says in verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Look at the culture we live in, folks. Look at what we have been learning about their hedonistic, narcissistic culture. And then look at the world we live in now. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon wrote. They were fighting the same battle then that we're fighting now. And Jesus appeals to them uh, in Matthew on the basis of prayer. It's where the battle is, 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 is won or lost. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and that where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will answer. Appealing to the Greeks because it was a self-centered culture. Again, sound familiar? He's saying, you can serve me as opposed to serving yourself. And we live in a culture that celebrates self. When we get into John 13, we will look at servanthood. We will look at what it means to spend your life in the service of God through serving others, through going low. And we're going to take some time. We're going to slow down and look extensively at servanthood. The point that Jesus is making here, though, to these Greeks is that your life will not bring satisfaction through Hellenistic thought, philosophy, ideas. Gang, you need to divorce yourself from that. And you need to get on board with my program because my program is much better. And it has to do with dying to self. It has to do with embracing him, with serving him. And it's the same message. It's the same message today. I, you know how much we have that competes for our affection in our culture? I, you know, when, when I was involved in taking groups of teens and adults to Mexico, I did that for about 10 years. I would always tell our, our, our team, don't feel sorry for these people. Their culture is what it is. Are they poor? Yes, they're poor, physically. But they have far less to compete for their affections than we do. And from that standpoint, they have an advantage. What competes for your affection? What competes for the throne of your heart? Is it pleasure? Is it stuff? Whatever it is, allow the Lord to plumb the depths of your heart. Allow him to do that, that holy surgery that he loves to do and see to it that you don't leave here without doing business with him. That's why I wanted to keep communion till the end of this service today because it's a time for us to just come before the Lord in an attitude of humility and an attitude of, of, Lord, work in me. Lord, do that, do that divine surgery in my heart. Lord, let me apply your word to my life. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. Don't be conformed to the junk that's out there. Don't get drawn in by the allure of the world, and it looks good. It looks good. But be transformed 
by God's word, by, his, by, by him working in your heart through the work of the agency of the Holy Spirit. So the question as we wrap up is this, do I see our culture through the lens of Christ, through the lens of God's word? Or do I see Christ through the lens of our culture? It's a probing question. It's something that, as I sat and studied yesterday and prepared for this morning's message, I, uh, that the, the Spirit of God confronted me with, is really, how do I orient? And I'm not saying that we get out there and we shake our fists and we hate people in our, because we live in a culture. But you know, the body of Christ is a separate culture. We are called to be separate. We're called to be set apart. And this is a wonderful culture. You go out there and you want to be a part of that, you're going to get beat up. I love what God's doing in our hearts, in our lives. I love what he's doing in this church. And I love the yieldedness I see to the working of his Holy Spirit. Keep it up, gang. Keep the main thing the main thing.